So every week we crack open the Bible. Uh, we're currently in the middle of a Proverbs series, so you can open your Bible to the middle. You'll probably find Proverbs there. Uh, Proverbs, scandalous wisdom. The idea is that as we listen to God's voice, that's what biblical wisdom is, listening and obeying. And then the other idea is that that's scandalous to our culture. It's shocking. It's confusing because we have a broader culture, really all of humanity. We've taken part in this as well. We're rebels. We've said, we want to do life on our own. We want to live by our own truth. God says, no, I've designed you. I've built you. Listen to me. Follow me. Trust my grace. So that we've, that's what we've seen week after week in Proverbs. This week, we're calling the sermon Success in Life. Success in Life. We'll be looking primarily at Proverbs chapter 3, which I think is around page 540 in the Black Bibles. It should be pretty close there if you're grabbing one of those Black Bibles from under the chairs. But it's Proverbs chapter 3. We'll also make some reference to Genesis chapter 1 as well when we think about how God defines success in life. And before we look at the text, I just want you to think about the different definitions that you've been given of success in life over the years. We all have different competing visions, different images of what success is. For you, it may be money. It might be fame. It might be health. It might be relationships. It might be comfort fun parties. I grew up in the 80s, and we worried a lot about getting blown up because of nuclear war. And so we worried a lot about that, and I think part of the way the culture answered that was with the party culture of MTV and the music and the the videos and all that that was going around in the 80s. And there was one particular song that kind of gave a vision of what success looked like, and we used to sing that song and listen to that song and dance to the song. We really enjoyed it. I want to share come a, a few of the lines from the song with you. It says, everybody's got a bomb. We could all die any day. Ah, says that. <laughs> but before I'll let that happen, I'll dance my life away. Oh, oh, oh. They say 2000-00, party over. Oops, out of time. So tonight we're going to party like it's 1999. Anyone ever heard that song before? Okay. <laughs> all the old people, thank you very much. We loved that song. Of course, it came, it was popular in the early 80s. It came back around, got popular again in the late 80s, and then it came, came back around and got popular again in the year 1999 as we were headed into this future. And we used to listen to that song. And of course, there were different phases of my life where I had different images of success. But for a long time as a teenager, that, that vision of partying was an image of success. That was what I thought success in life would be. I was just enough of a nerd that I kind of tried to kind of plan, like, well, what's it going to be for me when, when 1999 comes? Where will I be? What will I be doing? I did the math. I figured out I'd be 26 years old at New Year's Eve, 1999. And I figured, okay, 26 years old, I will probably have made my millions by then. <laughs> so I'm going to be really rich. It's going to be a fantastic party. I'll still be single because, of course, I wouldn't have settled down by that age, right? Lots of girlfriends, lots of fun, lots of parties. I'll probably be driving a Maserati. I kind of had this Miami Vice suit image when I imagined it. You know, it was the 80s. Add a little Jetsons future stuff to that. And I was like, that's, that's what it'll be like. It'll be incredible partying. And so I'd imagined this, this picture of success. And then reality came. 1999, uh, I was right about some things and wrong about some things, right? I was actually right with the math. I'd I'd calculated that correctly. I was 26 years old in 1999, um, but everything else was different, right? 
I was not rich in driving a Maserati. As a matter of fact, I was driving a hail-damaged Ford Tempo at the time. Um, And I was not rich because I was actually living in St. Louis, Missouri, studying to get a graduate degree in Bible and theology and biblical languages so I could preach the Word of God and get better at, at teaching others the Bible. And as a result of that, I was in a place where I was working two jobs, mostly at night, kind of odd hours. I was also living off of other people's charity, living off the support of a church and friends who were just helping me get through school. So very poor. Um, I was actually working that night, New Year's Eve, as a security guard. I came home from one of my security guard shifts about 11.15. I was wearing what my wife and I used to jokingly call my Elvis costume, And by that, I meant that it was like an old, dated 70s security guard costume that had gotten recycled multiple times. So it kind of reminded me of Elvis at the end of his career. For whatever reason, it just kind of looked like that. It was shiny and polyester and stuff. So I come home, and I'm in that dated uniform. I had bought a couple of candy bars so that I could celebrate with my wife, right? I come home about 11.15. My wife's already asleep. The babies are already asleep. We had two babies. Um, They were already asleep as well. And so I think, okay, well, I'll just sit by myself and watch Dick Clark on the TV as the ball drops and eat my candy bar alone. It wasn't exactly what I had imagined (laughs) when I thought and sang and danced to the song 1999 for the previous 15 years, right? Um, And yet, at that time, I knew Jesus I knew Jesus, and so I knew, even though I was laughing inside, I knew that actually, with all the contrasts of what I imagined and what was actually happening, I I knew that I actually, at that very young age of 26, was beginning to enjoy real success. I knew Jesus. I had a wife that loved me, and I loved her. And yeah, she wasn't able to stay up till midnight, but she was a good woman, right? I actually went in and just gave thanks to God for these sweaty toddler babies and this wife that had worn herself out reading stories to them. I was like, this is, this is a good life. This is success. I now know what real success is. And my, my 80s images of success were wrong. But I knew true success because I knew God and I was enjoying walking with him in a context of people that I loved and that loved me. I'd come to know real success. My prayer for you is that you would know true success as well. The Bible paints a roadmap for us to know how to achieve success in life. And so I want to start with Proverbs chapter 3. We'll read there, but as I said, we'll reference Genesis 1 a little bit as we move through. So as you're in Proverbs 3, you might you know, also kind of hold a place in Genesis 1. It just should be the first or second page of your Bible as well. But let's start off by reading Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, to to lay a foundation for a a biblical definition of success in life. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, but Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Good success. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean 
on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. That's a good place to start for definitions of success. We'll try to find some more specifics as we move through these other texts this morning. Um, But I think we need to pray. Uh, We're all caught up in, in this whirlwind of different definitions, right? Like what we grew up with, what our parents told us, what we see in the culture and in media. And the question is, what is true success? And are we willing to listen to God's voice as he teaches us? So I'm going to pray that his Holy Spirit would come and be with us and make us mindful and good listeners of what his word has to say. So let's pray. God, we ask that you would be with us this morning, that you would help us um, in all the distractions to focus on your voice as we hear it in your word. We believe that you speak to us. Um, we often feel alone. We often feel like we're living in a, in a world of silence. We wonder why you don't speak, Lord. But here we gather in faith saying you have spoken. You do speak through your word. Jesus has come for us. He's given us his word. And so we, we pray that your spirit would open our ears and our minds to receive it. That you would help us to understand who you are and what success is so that we would receive your grace and follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at Proverbs 3, and as I said, we'll also reference Genesis chapter 1, uh, we see three helpful things, I think, about success. Number one, success was defined at the very beginning. That's where we will reference Genesis 1. It was, it was defined at the very beginning. So if we're wondering what success is or kind of what the target is, well, God gives it to us right out the gate. Like, what are humans for? Success was defined at the beginning. Number two, success is measurable. This one's difficult because I think as Bible people and as people that love God's spirit, we're tempted to say it's all spirit, no flesh. It's all heavenly realities, no earthly realities. But the Bible is going to force us to wrestle with that. There are some earthly realities to success. And Proverbs takes us again and again to very pragmatic, tangible, measurable earthly realities. So success is measurable. And then finally, success depends on God. We're familiar with that. We know success depends on God. We've heard that before. We need to trust him. We need to walk with him. Success depends on God. So number one, we'll look at the first point. And again, kind of put a hand in Genesis 1 and keep your hand in Proverbs 3 because we'll come back to it. Uh, But success was defined at the beginning. At the very beginning, success was defined for us. We've been given a target to shoot before. We've been given a definition of what human success is and what humans are built for. So Genesis chapter 1, we'll read verses 26 through 28. In 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So that's just totality, everything, right? Human beings are made in God's image, in his likeness to rule over the world. That's what human beings are made for. We get a little bit more specific in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. A lot of confusion about that part in our culture today, but we would say, yeah, gender is also a gift from God. It's not the most important thing about us, but it's a fact that we need to listen to God's voice about. So he's created humanity in the image of God. Verse 28 says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And so we've got some basic components here of what success looks like. It looks like 
fruitfulness. It looks like dominion. It looks like being male and female. It looks like being made in the image of God for the purpose of reflecting the image of God to the world, showing his image. We're built in his likeness and we're supposed to reveal that likeness to the world as we rule and reign as kings and queens of creation, as we are fruitful and multiply, as we build families, build spiritual followers, build culture, build businesses. Um, I think a helpful storyline concept for, for seeing where this is going with Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is God puts human beings in paradise and says, now go spread more paradise. That's what we're built for. And we have been created in God's image, created to reflect God's image. Why do we not always perfectly reflect God's image? Well, without looking up all the verses, I'll tell you the story. Sin, right? Genesis 1, 2, and 3 plays out the story. So Adam and Eve did this thing that we keep replaying in our lives as well. And what they did was they said, God, we want your stuff, but we don't want you. We want to take the blessings of creation, but we don't want a relationship with you, God. We don't want to be dependent on you, God. We want to be independent. We want to be our own gods. To put it in modern language, what Adam and Eve did and what we often do is they said, we want to look inside our own fickle hearts and we'll find the blueprints for success there. And God said, that's not, that's not going to work. And so instead of spreading paradise, we've spread death and brokenness, and selfishness, and hell. That's the story of humanity. And yet we have this great potential, still made in the image of God. Genesis 9 clarifies this. The image of God is still in humanity. It's not like it's ripped out completely and it's missing. Francis Schaeffer, one of my favorite Bible teachers and apologists from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, he explained it this way. He said, we are glorious ruins. We're glorious ruins. Even if you don't trust the Bible, you can agree to this. Human beings are simultaneously glorious and ruined. Human beings are really awesome and really messed up. Like we just, we all know it. It's just true. It's the facts as they present themselves to us. And so Schaefer said with this concept or illustration of glorious ruins, it's like if you go into a junkyard and you see your favorite model of classic car and it's dinged, and rusty, and there are missing parts. But can you still see the glory in that model, right? That classic, that beauty. You're like, oh, look at that, right? And there's rust. There's brokenness. In a sense, it's rebelling from its original design. But you can see all the the hope, the vision of, of what it could be. It could be restored, right? It's the same thing with human beings. The image of God is there. It's cracked and broken because of our sin, but it's still there. And God is calling on us to to trust in him and his forgiveness, to receive salvation, forgiveness of sin, and then begin to follow him in obedience. And as we do that, as we obey his voice, then the rust starts to get rubbed out. The paint gets reapplied. You might need a little Bondo or something, right? Like you're You're getting rebuilt and restored. New lights are put in. And we know it's not finished until the resurrection, until we see him face to face. That's the groaning of Romans 8. We still groan. We still long to be complete, to have all of our glory restored so we perfectly reflect the image of God. But but still, that's our purpose. That's what we're built for. That's what we're designed for. So 
So success was defined at the beginning. And again, what, what is the success defined at the beginning? It's defined that we would be kings and queens of creation, that we would rule and reign. Some of you have larger kingdoms. Some of you have smaller kingdoms, right? We might have different sized kingdoms, but we're all kings and queens of creation. We are to rule and reign and spread paradise and reflect his image and his likeness to the world. Proverbs 8 reflects this whole creational element. We studied it a few weeks ago. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it real quick. 8.22 says, The Lord possessed me, this is wisdom talking, the Lord possessed wisdom at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, the first before the beginning of the earth. And so Proverbs ties in God's original creative design and says that is wisdom, right? And so what we want to do is we want to say, okay, we recognize that it hasn't worked out in any civilization for human beings to build our lives on our own blueprints by looking at our own fickle hearts and desires. We have to repent from those desires, trust God, receive the blueprints that he's given us. I grabbed a picture of of blueprints here. You know, when you build something, when you design something, you have a plan. It's good to know that God had a plan for us. He designed us from the very beginning to reflect his image, to reflect him, his character, his goodness, his likeness in the world. So that's kind of the big target, right? That doesn't define for you like whether you should be a teacher or a soldier or a, a doctor or a counselor, right? That, that blueprint doesn't give you every detail, but it does clarify that you should do those things, whatever your gifts and your circumstances allow in life, you should do those things for the glory of God. Westminster Confession, the Second London Baptist Confession, both say, what is the purpose of man? What's the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So that's what success looks like, to to glorify. Glorify really means to show how great he is. We do that by reflecting his image, by obeying him, by listening to him. So my question for you is, what's your authority? Is your authority scripture? Is your authority what God defined at the very beginning? Or is your authority your own desires? What you want today, which may change from what you want tomorrow? Or are you rooted in the standards of truth. Our, our church is one of those weird churches that says the Bible is our authority. It explains what our design is. It gives us the blueprint, blueprints. It defines success for us. So we try to place ourselves under the authority of God's word. We say repeatedly that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. And I want you to understand, though, is we don't start with that doctrine of sola scriptura or the authority of scripture or inerrancy. Those are all important doctrines, but we don't start there. Where do we start? We start with Jesus. Jesus came for me. He died for me. He rose from the dead, proving that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And so because of Jesus, I listened to this Bible that he's authorized. He said repeatedly he trusted the authority of the Old Testament. And then he commissioned apostles to write the New Testament. So because of Jesus, I listen to his voice through this book. I don't start with the doctrine of scripture and then build my life there. I start with Jesus. And then I listen to scripture for his voice so that I can obey him and reflect his image in the world. There's a lot of helpful apologetics that can help us make sense of what we have found in here because I just want to be honest straight with you. Uh, If you've picked up the Bible and just started reading, you're going to find confusing stuff, right? So we want to be transparent about that. Yeah, there's stuff you read in here. You're like, what in the world? Like, it it doesn't all make sense out of context. We just open it up. 
There are helpful answers out there. I'd love to walk with you through that. If you have specific questions about weird things you found in the Bible, we'd love to talk to you about that. But we do believe it's authoritative because of Jesus. And then we go back and we put in the time to go, okay, well, let's make sense of this and that and understand it in its cultural perspective. I would also say that it has a a kind of literary and artistic authority as well. It's the one story that makes sense. It's the one story that is like a fairy tale and that it's inspiring, and yet it's a fairy fairy tale that is true. It's the true fairy tale. It's the true children's story. It's this inspiring story of of heroism and slaying the dragon and making the world right in all of its brokenness. But it's the one story like that that's actually true. And we get to be caught up in this story of what God is doing to make the world right. So I encourage you to build your life off the blueprint of Scripture. What are some alternative blueprints that we use? Well, as I said, just kind of the the desires of our own hearts, our, our own fickle thoughts. Um, another blueprint we often go to is the algorithms of the internet because they're always true, right? You've got robots trying to make money off you and you go look things up and think, ah, these robots will give me the answers to life. No, they just want your money. They just want to take your soul and your money. They're not going to give you answers. I mean, occasionally we find some random true things through Dr. Google, but don't go there for your blueprints, right? Like, don't go there to figure out life. Another one that I think is a competing blueprint for us is tradition. Now, here's the weird thing for us. As Bible people, we often line up a lot with tradition. But we don't get our answers from tradition. We get our answers from the Bible. And so as long as tradition agrees with the Bible, we're like, yep, we're traditional. When it disagrees with the Bible, nope, we're not traditional, right? And so that can be a little confusing too. Tradition is not the answer. It doesn't mean it's bad, but the Scripture is the answer. How are you building your life in such a way that you're under the authority of Scripture? So that when God gives you gifts, He gives you a job, He gives you an opportunity to use your skills and talents to be a king and queen of creation, do you recognize His definition of success as defined at the beginning? He's given you a gender. He's given you a task. He's given you this big bullseye of glorify me. Now, some of those things work its way out in in specifics, right? Different callings, different genders, but we all have this big giant bullseye. We're all the same with this big forward focus of glorifying God with our gifts, of being fruitful spiritually, physically, spreading culture, spreading paradise for God's glory. That's the definition of success. So that's the big definition. We get it from Scripture. Second point is that success is measurable. I want to make us a little bit squeamish and a little bit uncomfortable here with this point. Success is measurable. We see it in, back in Proverbs 3, 1 through 4, and in verses 8 through 10. And what I mean by measurable is that we have knowable commandments from God. There, there, actually, there is actually a right and wrong that we can know. We live in a culture that doesn't believe that anymore. And I am, I'm a nuanced person, I'm a, well, let's think about the other side of that. I'm that kind of temperament, right? But there's just, there is right and wrong. And we we have to agree with the moral framework that God has given us. So our culture says, well, you can't believe in moral commands and also not uh, agree with the former laws about shellfish and tattoos or whatever, you know. No, there, there are differences in the ceremonial laws. Those have changed. And the moral law has always been the same. And that's what the Bible teaches. And that's what we believe. 
And we would say it's a knowable framework of God's commands that we could live by. We also see in this text that there are countable days and years. It's going to talk about long life and long years. That's part of the measure of success. So there's a physicality to human success. God's made us to live physical lives. And a New Testament vision of this is that ultimately we're headed to bodily resurrection, where we'll see Jesus and all things will be made right and we'll be a new glorified body. So there's a physicality to success. There's a measurableness to success. Uh, We see him also in the text talking about refreshed bones, healing in our life, and then also talking about overflowing vats of wine. Okay, that one's a little more controversial. But let me read read the text. So chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. My son, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. They're keepable. You can watch over God's moral commands for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. So he's saying that as we obey God, we're going to live a long life. Do you believe that? There's this whole... There's this whole kind of Christianity that's warped and twisted some of these verses. It's called the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel. And it makes everything of these verses. And so what we want to do is we want to be careful to say as we reject a false teaching that makes everything out of these verses, we don't reject them altogether because the verses are there, right? Um, I've been hearing and reading and and just having conversations with people, listening to podcasts, more and more talking about the uh, epidemic of anxiety in our young people today. We live in very anxious times. Any of you ever worry about anything? And you know, if if you don't give that worry to God and begin to find uh, helpful, positive ways to diffuse that worry, what will that do to your body? It'll mess up your body. It'll begin to destroy your body chemistry your physicality. And yet if you begin practicing habits of prayer and trusting God with your grief, your pain, your bitterness, your anxiety, which Philippians 4, 6 through 7 talks about, taking all of those requests to God, then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That'll actually improve your health. So now health and wealth people take it too far by saying it's like a one-for-one automatic thing. And if you're good, You'll live forever, right? You know, like they, they just make it kind of automatic. But there is still a, there's a general principle here that's true. There is general health, physical success that comes out of obedience. Well, let's keep reading. He says, so um, peace they will add to you. Verse 3, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Just to be clear, this is poetic language. Uh, in the whole sweep of Scripture, we would say God's steadfast love doesn't run away from people we run away from him, right? So when it says, don't let his steadfast love, his gracious love, his faithfulness, don't let it forsake you. What it's saying is grab hold of it by faith. Make it the center of your life. Trust in God. Steadfast love can be translated as grace. Faithfulness can be translated as truth. John picks this up in his gospel. Grace and truth clearly seen in Jesus Christ. Grab hold of the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. Grab hold of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, his kindness to you. Grab hold of that Bind it around your neck. Write it on the tablet of your heart. You'll find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. And then I want to skip down to verses 8 through 10. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. More of this healing language. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting 
with wine. So here's how I would teach this. As we walk in obedience to Jesus, there are real physical results of success, generally. It's not a mechanical one-for-one guarantee, right? Because who's the most obedient person that ever lived? What happened to him? He died for us, and he was poor. That was God's particular calling on his life. That may be God's calling on your life. That may be God's calling on my life. God's calling may be for me to get hit by a bus when I walk out today. That may be his calling. Thankfully, we don't have a lot of buses around here, so I have pretty, <laughs> pretty good chance of surviving that one. But you know what I'm saying, right? Like, like we don't have this guarantee. Our guarantee is in Jesus we have full resurrection, right? Our guarantee is stated clearly in Romans 8. We live this life with some groaning, and then one day everything will be made right. Our best life is future, not now. But we just want to be careful and not just ignore everything it says about physical success. Like, yeah, that's a part of it. There's this general principle of obedience to God results in good things, right? Like if you're honest and you work hard, generally life is going to go better for you. And so we, we can't skip over that, right? That is a part, physical success is a part of success in life. Success is measurable. So we don't want to fall off one end of saying success is all spiritual and there's no physical reality at, at all. We also don't want to fall off the other end of the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel that kind of makes it everything, right? So here's a couple of the errors of the prosperity gospel to distinguish what what they would say and what I'm not saying, right? Here's one of their errors. God must mechanically bless you in equal measure to your faith and your financial giving. Prosperity gospel makes God into a vending machine, and you're putting quarters of faith and obedience and financial giving for your rich pastor into that vending machine, and then he spits out blessings. It's a one-to-one relationship. It's mechanical. So again, the Bible would say, yeah, there's, there's general blessing as you live a good and godly life. But it's not guaranteed, right? Your calling may be to suffer and die like Jesus next week, or it might be in 50 years. Or you might live a, a relatively pain-free life compared to other people with just great, rich, physical blessings. If you do, that is so that you can glorify God and serve others. That's what that life is for. Second error is suffering is not really a part of God's plan for us. And this one's tricky. We have to tease this out, right? Because death and suffering is a result of sin. That's what Genesis teaches. We brought in hell. We've brought in suffering through our disobedience. And yet God is so sovereign and so gracious. He can take that, that suffering and that death and he can, he can turn that around for his purposes. So he uses the most evil, horrible, innocent suffering in all of history, that of Jesus Christ, to save the world. And Paul is clear that that we can get caught up in that as well, in a good way. God can use our suffering to help other people. And so we can have a a renewed and glorious purpose for our suffering, even though it might have been caused by evil, sinful men. And we're going to have to go through counseling and recover and heal from that. And yet God can use some of those things to help us, to help other people to heal, to pass on the good news of God's grace. So we have to avoid the extremes of the prosperity gospel while also acknowledging success is measurable, right? Like human success is a long life and and fruitfulness. Money, riches, wealth, physical fitness, that's a part of success, right? It's not the only thing, 
Scripture's really clear about that. And the Proverbs really nails us pretty nicely with this little proof text here. Verse 28.6, Proverbs 28.6 says, Better is a poor man who walks in integrity than a rich man that's crooked. Right? It's like if you've got the option and you can hold on to your integrity and love God and be poor or be rich, the Bible's very clear. Yes, spiritual blessings are way more important. We just don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Let me give a little testimony in my own life, because I think sometimes what can happen is your own growing up poor or your own growing up rich can warp your understanding of these things, and you're not really listening to what Scripture says. So in our family, uh, my dad was a doctor. We lived in a fancy doctor neighborhood, uh, and then my dad moved away when I was five, and we were poor, but we still lived in the nice doctor neighborhood. So the way I coped with that, never having enough money, and all my friends being wealthy, but us always struggling financially and things kind of falling, around, falling apart all around us. The way I coped w- with that, not using scripture or God's grace, I coped with that by saying, I don't care about money. Money's stupid. I don't need that. Money's bad. It's bad to be rich. But that's how I coped with that. That's not really a biblical response to suffering and being poor. And so when I first got married, uh, I brought that into my marriage. I was like, yeah, we don't want money. That's not cool. I'm spiritual. I don't care about those things. And yet I was supposed to provide for this wife and children, right? Like, you kind of need money to feed and clothe a family. I had to rework my whole theology of wealth and prosperity. It's no longer cool to just say, I don't care, it doesn't matter. Oh, I need to work. I need to make money, right? Like, these things, these things matter. So think about in your own life how you were brought up. You, you may not go the direction I went, but chances are your, your thinking has been warped in some way by your experience, whether rich or poor. And you've learned to cope with that in different ways. What I'm saying is bring that grief and that sadness from your childhood to God, offer it to him, and then say, God, what's the truth about these things? How, how can you teach me to live according to your roadmap? Success is measurable. It is physical. We get this picture of our, our vats being bursting with wine. I grabbed a picture online of vats of wine um, just to kind of like show how how far off this biblical view is from what we think about it sometimes, right? Like how many of you thought I was going to teach today that, that success is you having a cellar full of vats of wine? Did you think I was going to teach that this morning, right? But that's what the Bible teaches. Now, to be clear, I think it's kind of hyperbole. It's exaggeration for effect. The Bible does teach in Proverbs, and we'll come back to it, that you got to be careful about strong drinking wine, right? There's a there's a very good reason to be suspicious of these things. It can get us into trouble, but that's also true of money and popularity and relationships, everything else, right? We can turn anything into an idol that can take control of us and, and lead us astray. So we'll deal with the specifics more of strong drink uh, in the future in Proverbs. But what I want you to just be thinking about is what's my image of success and what's God's image of success, Right? Am I on the one end, kind of the Gnostic end of success is knowing God, but having absolutely no physical blessings? Is that your view of success? Or are you on the other end, the prosperity gospel of, yeah, success is being rich. I don't really care about God. It's just being rich, right? Like which side of the horse are you more apt to fall off of? And what does it look like to, uh, to trust God and obey his word? So here's what I would say we want to do. How do we do measurable physical success? I would say we want to work hard, save money, and be generous to glorify God, to reflect his image in the world. You got that? 
Work hard, save money, be generous. That's how we should see our, our physical blessings. John Piper had some interesting stuff that he wrote on this about the prosperity gospel and physical prosperity. He said, there are three different views of physical prosperity, of, of riches and wealth and work. Number one, steal, because prosperity is everything. So you just got to steal it, right? We know that's wrong. Number two, work hard, because prosperity is everything. That's fallen off the other side. And then thirdly, he says, this is the biblical view. Work hard so that you can have physical prosperity, so you can glorify God and have something to share with others. The biblical view is a little more complex. Work hard, have blessings, enjoy them, glorify God, but also be generous and hold those things loosely and help other people. That's the biblical view. I would also say when it comes to our health and healing, some of us have diseases. Some of us have physical problems, right? There's not a guarantee of if you pray, it's immediately gone. Or if you obey God enough, you're, all your sickness will be made better. We can pray. God does sometimes inter- intervene. There is a general health that goes with obeying God's word, but we live in this broken world, Romans 8, of groaning and longing for him to completely heal us in the bodily resurrection. That's where we're headed. But still, we should be good stewards of what we have. So with our own physical lives, this is what obedience looks like. Exercise, eat right. Why? So that you can be strong, glorify God, serve others, right? So we want to be careful not to fall off into the idolatry of fitness, right? Our world is obsessed with image and body dysmorphia and all that. We don't want to fall off the wagon into that. It's not about this perfect physical image, It's about just being good stewards with what God has given us. We want to exercise. We want to eat right. We want to be good stewards with what we have, not to fall off into idolatry, right? Uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.8 says it this way. Bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of greater value for this life and the life to come, right? So again, there's that ordering of, yeah, godliness is way more important, but we want to be good stewards. We want to exercise. We want to eat right. We want to have some physical success, right? So for me personally, I want some physical health, not so that I can make an idol out of my body, but so I can granddad better and longer, right? I want to preach more and longer. I want to keep going. I want to serve the world with the gifts that God has given me and the calling that he's given me so I can glorify him and serve other people, right? So our physical wealth, our physical fitness, both of those things are stewardships he gives us that are pictures of the future that we're looking forward to. Okay, the last point is the success depends on God. Success depends on God. We hit this all the time. We've heard this before. It's depending on God by faith. It's trusting God by faith. So the first point was we have this kind of general uh, target we're aiming for, right? That God has defined and it's imaging God. That's where we're headed, right? Rule and reign is kings and queens of creation, spread paradise. The second point was a lot of that is in our physicality. We want to make money. We want to share that money. We want to glorify God with our bodies, with our um, economies, with our jobs, right? And now third point, success depends on God. We want to walk by faith with Jesus again. So this is the difference between the idolatry of the prosperity gospel that says, yeah, I I give so that God will give me more money, right? I, I pray so that I'll have perfect health and wealth now. No, Uh, We want to trust God and say, whatever you give me, God, it's good. So Proverbs 3, 1 through, next point, Proverbs 3, 3 through 4, I think, 3 through 5. All right, don't look at the screen. Proverbs 3, 3 through 5. 
Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So we already said that's holding on to the steadfast love, the gracious love of God. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Now verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. So it's this desperate trusting in God. And then Proverbs 10, 27 says, The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. So the fear of the Lord, we've said again and again, is an Old Testament, harsh Old Testament way of saying, trust in God. God's awesome. He's bigger than me. It's not a sort of craven fear of, I'm afraid I'm going to get whacked. It's just like this trembling and awe before God's beauty and holiness. Fear of the Lord prolongs life. Proverbs 14.31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. So again, we have this picture of how are we going to use our wealth, our opportunity? Are we going to try to honor God with these opportunities? Are we going to try to build up ourselves? It's all about depending on God, honoring God, pointing back to God, trusting in the Lord with all our heart, leaning not on our own understanding. Letting steadfast love and faithfulness be the thing that gives us life. We cling to it. We wrap it around our neck. We, we hold on to it desperately. God, I need you. We are dependent on God. One of my favorite illustrations of this is the moon. When we were hiking the Grand Canyon, the dark part at the morning and in the evening, there's a full moon. So you could see the trail more clearly. Now, we also had flashlights because you could still fall off a cliff in the Grand Canyon. But like when you're home in Texas and everything's flat, you, you can see a lot with a full moon, right? There's a lot of light. There's a lot of comfort from a full moon on a dark night. But we know that that full moon is completely dependent on the sun. It doesn't have a light of its own. It's a reflector. It reflects light. And so in the same sense, it's clear Jesus is the light of the world. And then other places, Jesus is like, now you're the light of the world, and I'm sending you out to be a light. And so we have this responsibility to reflect his light in the world, but we do that as we're dependent on him, right? We're a reflector. We don't, we don't create that light out of our own soul, out of our own divine spark. We do that in dependence on God. Adam and Eve and us, we say, no, I want to be independent. I want to do my own thing. Repentance is saying, no, God, I do need you. I trust you. You died for me. You rose from the dead. I'm going to depend on you. I'm going to wake up every morning and say, Jesus, I need you. Will you lead me? Will you guide me. And as we do that, then we're shining light to those around us. That's another measure of success, depending on God. And I would say this is the ultimate measure of success. As Proverbs has said in the verses we already read, there's the sense of which there's a physicality to our success. And we want to have money and we want to have health and we want to bless people with the things that we've been given. But if we've got a choice to make, it's going to be trusting in God first. If God says, hey, I can give you a lot of money, but you've got you to recant your faith, give up on God. Or over here, I've got this life of suffering and sacrifice and difficulty. New Testament is clear again and again. That's the life we choose, right? Dependent on God. Trusting that God's going to make all things right. Romans 8, reorienting our suffering so that we see him face to face. Everything is good in the end. So success depends on God. How do we do that? We do that by gathering in worship, right? That's one of the ways that we practice that. I would say keep, keep doing that. Keep gathering with the saints and ordering your life around who God is, how he's revealed himself as we worship 
together as we hear his word, as we encourage one another in that. We talk a lot too about serving on a team, right? Serving on a team is a really beautiful way to depend on God. What happens is uh, as a young Christian, you can say, man, this is exciting. I want to share this with other people, right? I want to serve, serve in the nursery or serve in the welcome team or teach Sunday school. And then what happens is you'll be, you'll be kind of pushed into areas that are more difficult than you imagined. And you're going to have to keep running back to God and depending on him by faith. Like, God, help me. Like, man, these kids are difficult. Help, help, me. <laughs> help me to teach this class, right? Or, wow, I was on the welcome team and there were a lot of weird people talking to me and I don't know what to do about this. You have to depend on God by faith even to serve others in his name. And what's really cool is as we serve others, as we share what he's given to us and we share that back with others, that, that grows us. It's part of how we're sanctified. We, we get more excited about depending on him more. And it's this beautiful cycle as we serve others. And then finally, we talk about joining a group all the time, right? That's just saying with other people, hey, I need, I need your help. I need to depend on God with other people. I need you to cry with me and, and pray with me and encourage me in the word. We, we need each other to depend on God in community. I'd say it's also really important to not miss your own daily, personal, private time, right? Like at Jesus in Matthew 6 talks about having a spiritual life in a prayer closet, you know, just, just you and Jesus. So when you wake up in the morning, it's not just Facebook or Instagram, but it's like, Jesus, help, help me get through this day. You, you read scripture, you, you memorize scripture. Um, I, I like to talk about this a lot to encourage you that it doesn't always look the same, right? You want to be a student of Scripture, but some of you are going to be listeners. Some of you are going to be reciters and memorizers. Some of you are going to be students. You know, you're going to want to go in depth and study big chunks of Scripture. Others of you just need to memorize the same verse over and over again and repeat it to yourself. But live a life dependent on God through daily Bible time and prayer. And then finally, some of you need to initiate for the first time a life of faith and dependence on God. Some of you are, are here just kind of listening in. You think we're a little bit crazy for listening to this Bible and following this Jesus. But, but you may be right at that point where you're like, I'm, I'm ready now. I see, I see I am a sinner. I see I am selfish. I need to trust Jesus to forgive me. I can just ask him to come in and he'll set me free. And I want to encourage you that it, it is that simple. You, you can just ask him to forgive you of your sins to come in to your life and he'll, he'll lead you. You can depend on him personally in a relationship. Well, I want to wrap up here. Success in life, again, looks like different things to different people. For you growing up, it might have been, it might have been money. It might have been fun. It might have been parties. It might have been pleasure. Um, and I just want to be clear, introducing the music of Prince. Jesus nowhere in the scriptures endorsed Prince or his music. I just want to be clear about that. Um, 1999 is a great song. Go enjoy it, but don't don't listen to any of Prince's other music, okay? I just want to, I kind of want to warn against that. But Jesus did endorse parties. Jesus did endorse music and dancing. One of the most famous stories Jesus ever told is in Luke chapter 15. And in that story, Jesus said that when people turn from their sin and their independence and they turn back to God, in his grace, God throws a huge party. God rejoices. Heaven rejoices. The angels rejoice. In the parable of the prodigal son, he, he uses the image of music and dancing to celebrate the return of the son who had rejected his father's love. 
finally comes to a census and it's like, man, it'd be better to be a slave in my father's house to be out here in the pig slop. That might be where you are. If that's where you are, know that the God of the universe sets a party for us. He's gracious. He, he took the payment of our sin on his own back. He paid the price for that separation so that he could set the table for this party and invite you into the music and dancing. And I'd say on the other side of that story, you've got the, the older brother that was just appalled that the father would be so gracious. I don't want to warn you. I want to warn you this morning, if, if you're one of those people like the older brother that feels like, man, I've been doing everything right. I've been giving. I've been obedient. And God owes me blessings. Know that ultimately the father, like in the parable in Luke 15, is pleading with you to come into the party. It's not by your slaving away. It's not by your faithfulness. It's by what the Father has done for us. And he invites all of us to come into this party by faith in what Jesus has done. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you set the ultimate party for us. You're inviting us in. I pray that we would see that, that we would live our life now in anticipation of a God who rejoices over us. So Lord, help us to live this life by your definition of success, imaging you, reflecting you as we, we lead and serve in the different callings you've given us. God, teach us to be faithful stewards of these physical bodies, of our, our money, of our jobs, of our houses, to use it, again, for your glory, to serve others. And finally, help us to do all this dependent on you, because of your grace, trusting in your goodness. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.